Hi, this is Marco. And this is Amalia. And Just kidding, you fell for it. Um, this is Marco and, and that's Amalia. Yeah, if you guys uh, couldn't get it already. Um, we are having a special guest today for our podcast. Uh, this is podcast number seven, I believe. And Marco insisted that I host um, for the very beginning. So I'm trying to be Marco right now. That's why I said his name earlier as my own. But basically, we're going to be giving a quick recap on the sports. And then we're going to go straight into a very special guest interview, which we were super excited and honored to have. So, yeah. She was, she was exactly who we wanted as her first guest. She was like our number one target for first guest because she's, she's so important to McCormick and, mm -hmm. and the whole Institute. So it... Once, like, you're probably going to see it in the title because we're so hype about it. We're not going to hide it. <laughs> but yeah, we're so hype about it. And yes. uh, we're recording this on leg day. Wait, no, no, no. We're recording this on... Leg on, day? Yeah, leg day. No, no, no. Yesterday was leg day. No, we're recording this on the day after leg day. Um, well, Thursday. Marco's at the gym every day, so it doesn't even matter. We're recording this on Thursday. Uh, what date is it today? June 23rd. Hmm. So... Oh, by the way, we're going to start releasing the podcast on Monday during the summer so we can have the weekend to work on it yes. because we have internships. Uh, we're no longer unemployed. We're employed. Wait, yours is paid, right? No, it's not. No, yeah. Okay. It's, we're, it's we're... paid with experience. Yes, exactly. That's Money isn't everything, right? It isn't. Um, but you know what's everything? What? Sports. Oh, my God. Let's talk about it. Okay. okay, so Formula One, uh, disappointing for me, but many people would be happy. It was an amazing race in, wait, it, it was an amazing race. The rankings were kind of predictable, kind of unpredictable. Uh, but at the end of the day, Max Verstappen won first place. Although at the end of the race, uh, it got very, very close and, you know, Carlos Sainz could have could have won the, the GP if if he had had a better a little better race. He had a really good good race overall, and yeah, it took place in Canada, the the country that is known for very nice people. But you know what wasn't very nice? The weather. It, it, it was raining on the day that they were doing the qualifying. So Fernando Alonso he um, he started the race in second place, and well, he ended it in ninth place due to engine problems, but. Overall, he's 42 years old. I mean, what can you expect? Like, imagine being 42 and still racing. I, I would be, I would be old if I did that. But I would be very happy if I was doing that for at that age when most people are already, you know, in Monaco evading taxes. So, mm. mm -hmm. yeah, Leclerc he started um, on the last places on the grid. He started 19th because of changes that he had to do to his engine. But he finished in fifth place. Um, Mick Schumacher and Sergio Perez and Yuki Tsunoda, they all did not finish the race. And Mr. Consistent, George Russell got fourth place. Hamilton got third place, uh, signed second. And Verstappen uh, got first and, and he's extended his lead and at the top of the championship rankings. So um, other than Formula One, there's not much going on like in terms of sports. Hockey, it's 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 going on. We're we're not experts in hockey. We're gonna try to get about that. And um, then there's like the transfer market in Europe, 
which is taking place right now. Sadio Mane signed for Bayern Munich. It was announced yesterday. Oh, your favorite. Yeah, he's an amazing player. He's so, so he's so humble. He's apparently he he got a a journalist from Senegal, like not not globally known. He got him like he asked for him personally to come to the stadium because he's from Senegal, mm. and to to be in the stadium when he's being presented like as part of like I don't know. He's built a whole village like he turned his village into a town like building schools. Oh, he's wow. built hospitals mm-hmm. back home. Um, he doesn't like there was a video of him when he was with Liverpool with a broken like phone screen and and he's basically he's so humble so he's he's gonna be great to have around he was signed for 35 million euros wow which is very cheap it's very cheap wait what that's cheap yeah his market value is like 75 million euros oh wow so he goes from Liverpool to Bayern after winning everything he could have won at Liverpool Hmm. and I'm so excited there's still rumors that Lewandowski wants to leave, but Bayern don't want to let him leave. Mm. Um, Lukaku might be the worst transfer in, in the history of soccer and football because Chelsea bought him for 115 million around there with bonuses. And now he's living, leaving for Inter for 8 million on loan for one year after having a terrible first season. And him like mid-year, he was just like, oh, I regret coming here. Like, even though he was part of Chelsea, so he really, really, he really messed it up. But let's hope he 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 does good when when he moves to Inter. He goes back home because he loves Inter, and let's see what happens. And um, yeah, like um, Paul Pogba returned to to Juventus, and and other than that, there's a, a lot of transfers happening. So by the end of of the podcast, when when we're like in August, we're gonna do like a recap of the transfer market. Looking forward to to that and also understanding more of it by then, hopefully. Yeah. And um, uh, we want to introduce one topic that we're going to talk about. Um, we're going to talk about uh, NIL with Professor Must. Wait, I just said the name of our guest. Oh, wait, it's going to be in the title. But um, yeah, we talked about it and it means name, image, and likeness. Uh, oh, that's what it means? Yeah, so it's okay. it basically gives like amateur athletes, college athletes, the rights to their name, to their image, and to their likeness to actually market themselves, oh. to, earn, to earn money from it, to monetize their image. And that just gives more player power. And we're going to talk about the effects of that with Professor Musso. So we're very happy to introduce her. And yeah. It's, it's tough to break through there. Mm-hmm. Um. All right, but we are recording, so I guess I can just ask you, um, for yourself in the audience, who exactly you are and what your job is for sort of just an intro. Sure. Uh, my name is Emily Must. I'm a professor at UMass in the McCormick Department of Sport Management. Um, I do a little bit of everything. I wear a few hats here. One hat, obviously, is being a professor. And I teach a very wide range of classes. So I'm kind of the utility player in the department. So whatever they need me to teach, I'll teach. Mm -hmm. Um, I have taught intro and sport law. Those are the two classes now that I teach the most. Um, I'm taking on the new sports sales class coming this fall. But I've also taught, I also do teach sport policy, sport leadership, sport analytics. Um, I've done it all. And then I also teach marketing uh, to our MBA students. So just in the grad school. So it's not a sport marketing course. It's a generalist marketing course. 
Um, and then I'm the internship director. So that's the other big hat that I wear, um, really doing a lot with industry outreach and relations, as well as professional development for our students. So um, that is kind of why I ended up taking over the intro class as well, just so that we could put a lot of those key skills that we were doing outside of class, kind of inside of, of class. So everyone's getting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know you helped me out with my internship way too much. I was so lost. I feel so bad still for bugging. With all Why? That emails. sounds great, though. You're doing something, right? You're working at a climbing center? Yeah, a climbing gym. Fun. Yeah. So it's interesting, but I just, I was so lost. I didn't know. Hey, it happens. There's, I went to a very small college. I don't think I would have functioned as well in a very large college like this because it's, you got to be able to ask for help. Yeah. That's something no one tells you about. Yeah. If you can ask for help, you're going to be able to master anything in life because we all need help. <laughs> it's just asking for it that's tough. That's true. Uh, may I ask where you went to school? Sure. I did my undergrad and first grad degree at Barry University. It's a small Catholic college down in Miami, Florida. Um, they have like a randomly good sport management program, though, uh, considering how small they are. Um And I actually went to school for exercise science. Oh, really? So my first degree was in kinesiology. um, And my first grad degree was in biomechanics. Um, So I was really on the science side of things. Missed business. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I guess I didn't realize that that was in me, though, at Mm -hmm. the time. Um, And so stayed at Barry. I was working in residential life. Honestly, just loved working and living on campus. Mm -hmm. It's probably why I'm back at school now. Um, And so I I stayed there then for the MS in sport management, MBA, you know, dual degree, worked for a little while, and then went to the University of Northern Colorado for my PhD. Um, And so, you know, that was just thinking about wanting to get back onto onto campus. Right. That's actually, you answered my question without me even asking. Uh, one of my questions was like a short recap of your career, but that was like a perfect little. Um, yeah. I mean, I had some stops along the way, you know, I worked with the heat and the Marlins and um, an event management group called Marcus Evans. Um, and then I just really wanted to do something different. And I started thinking about all the people that I've met and I thought, man, Dr. Rosenberg, he was my sports sociology professor. I was like, I want to be like him. He has a great life. Um, and so I chatted with him and he's like, that's, you know, go get a PhD. And he's actually an alum of UMass. So it's oh, really wow. kind of funny. <laughs> but now here I am. Right. So sport management was like the last thing that you kind of wanted to check off or like yeah you know I just went from like the active and more participation side of sport to then understanding the business and Mm -hmm. quite frankly I think that that's where um I might be a little bit different from other some of the other faculty is that I'm I'm really trying to beef up our industry relations with that Mm -hmm. participation sport youth sport individual sports sports that are kind of outside the big four, big five mm-hmm. pro leagues, um, because they're the ones growing, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, those big four, big five, they're they're at a pretty big saturation point. Um, mm-hmm. And also it's really nice to work in participation sports. Yeah. That's why most of us are sport management majors, because we loved our time participating. So um, when I'm talking to young alums who are out there working on that side, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad that I'm, I'm doing this and working with the youth or, uh, you know, working with different uh, ability sport. It's, mm-hmm. it's nice. Something yeah. different. Yeah, there's so much diversity in working in sport management. And I didn't even know that when I came here. I just was like amazed by how many career paths we actually are. Um, 
One of the other questions I had was, uh, what was the sport management world like when you were first starting out and how has it changed? Um, talking about diversity and all of that. Oof. I think it's changed in a couple of ways. The business itself has really accelerated. Like the numbers of zeros involved in these deals right. has really, we've seen rapid expansion of that. Um, we have seen, just like we've seen, I think in Fortune 500, sport kind of mirrors those um, industries just the same in the sense that there are partners for a lot of our big sports. You know, these are our sponsor companies. There are partners staying up to date and what's going on just generally in industry is important. And so we've seen this huge technological shift as well mm-hmm. and data, right? And so in the past, not even that long ago, people were still buying tickets, especially to maybe a sport like baseball that doesn't have a lot of sellouts in certain markets. You could walk up, day of game, buy your ticket in cash, move through the stadium. Nobody knew you were there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like that anymore. And so now... Um, the amount of data and how it's used, I'd say, is certainly a big shift because it's on both sides of the industry, um, whether or not it's the uh, the team wanting to see like, okay, where was our longest concession line and how long were people waiting so that we can open up another stand and make things more efficient or make yeah. sure that we're having the popular items at more places, all the way to you know, did this fan end up engaging with that sponsor? And if they did, was that meaningful? And how do we tell that story to our sponsor as their kind of return on objective? Um, So we've seen that. And then also just in the makeup of who's working, Mm -hmm. there has been a shift and it's been great. I mean, I remember when I started, I was usually one of the only women in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, And often it was an interesting atmosphere. You know, I remember having to take a class on not dating players. Um, and the men didn't have to take any any uh, workplace etiquette classes, if you will, even though it often felt like a fraternity house um, in some of those office environments. And so we have seen a shift there. There's still a lot more work to be done. But I think one of the, the bigger shifts I've seen is that um, You know, if I was the only woman in the room or there was one other, sometimes that person might be hesitant Mm -hmm. to say, hey, let me pull up a chair for you. Because at that time it was like, no, there's only one seat and it's going to be mine. Um, And so now we're seeing this shift in really um, people throwing down that ladder and helping others, you know, climb up. Because Mm -hmm. with sport, you all know this, you might be working unpaid internships right now. But to me, that's the biggest barrier to diversity that we have. If you can't get that first or entry level role because you can't afford to take an unpaid internship, then you might not ever really get going. Mm -hmm. And that's not fair. Um, And I think that that ends up perpetuating a lot of the issues we have with diversity, equity and inclusion. And so it's, you know, so-and-so's niece or nephew who knows somebody who gets those roles um, and that can keep us from moving forward. And so now that we're seeing a lot more, and this is what I do as the internship director, try to um, coerce, if you will, um, companies into giving compensation of some sort. Um, And that's why we have as many scholarships as we have now for internships. Um, And those are from generous alums remembering how hard that was. Mm -hmm. And so... I think that that's something we're seeing shifting now where um, some internships now are going to at least an hourly wage um, to help increase diversity and give chances to, to honestly, you get the best candidates that way. So. Wow. 
I might have went off track. There. No, no. I mean, that okay. answered more than I could ever imagine. So, uh, thank you for that. It was very interesting. Um, yeah, Marco is here now. Hey, Professor Must. Hey, Marco. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. I, I sorry for being late. I was in a meeting with Marcus. We were doing cluster analysis. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> cluster analysis. Whoa, as an intern, I didn't do that until much later. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, yeah, Marco, to recap, we were just talking about um, Professor Muss and kind of how she started out and her career. Um, so, yeah, if you, uh, I learned that she went to school in Miami, so I was wondering if you guys could relate about that. Um, but yeah, I have another question about the personal side. Uh, what are some of the most valuable skills you've learned along the way of all of this that you were just talking about? One, I, I already told you there, asking for help. Right. Um, nobody does it alone. And, you know, when I was first getting out into the industry, I went to a smaller school and I still didn't do a good enough job of taking advantage of all the resources there. Um, and I think most of us just don't. When we have so many resources, sometimes we just like don't uh, check them all out. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely asking for help and understanding what networking is. I was always kind of scared of it or felt that it wasn't authentic or just felt weird about it because I, I wasn't doing it right. Um, and so now that I've learned that it's just meeting interesting people and maintaining those relationships, um, it's become much more fun. Mm -hmm. So I don't get like nervous anymore for a networking call because I'm here to just learn more about them and share something about myself and hopefully help each other out at some point in time. Um, and so I think understanding the importance too of just my classmates as my network and now that we're all getting older and I see some of these jobs that you know everyone's landing um you know it's that power of that that network and understanding that it really just starts then your friend group um and if you think of your network as your friends then it starts to kind of shift that mindset a little bit from transactional to relational which I think is a, a big benefit and that's in any industry. It just so happens that the sport industry is kind of simultaneously large and small. Mm -hmm. It's large dollars wise, right? That's why we're our own major. We're big business, but it's a couple of degrees of separation before you know someone who knows you. Yeah. Um, and that can be a great thing. And it can be not so great thing if you <clears throat> haven't, you know, maybe put your best foot forward uh, as, as much as you, you'd mm -hmm. hope you had. Um, and so I think those are some of the bigger things, you know, asking for help, understanding that networking is just friends being friendly and helping each other out, I think are kind of the two bigger lessons I've learned as I got older. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I was even, um, what you were saying about connections like, when I first came here, um, I am not very into, like, you were saying, the big four. Like, I don't really pay attention to ball sports as much as I should. I'm getting into it, but I'm big on climbing. And so I was thinking, like, oh, like, no one here, like, knows what I do. Like, the connections won't help me in the climbing world. But as, like, freshman year progressed, I realized, like, oh, that's totally not true. <laughs> like, um, and you'd be surprised. Yeah, yeah, you'd be surprised. Yeah, so just a little misconception that I learned. Um, and even just sharing that about yourself. So now I know that you're really interested in climbing and it's only a matter of time, you know, you're up here in my head now, it's only a matter of time before somebody reaches out or I get connected with, with someone like that. And even just now, as you said that I'm 
going through our alum Rolodex <laughs> in my head and thinking, well, Scott Crowder could probably help her out. He works in, in recreation and he does all of recreation for the state of New Hampshire. He's oh, actually wow. a government employee, right? So very, a lot of different uh, pathways mm-hmm. um, that, that you can take. Yeah, it's just, it's a little overwhelming, but very exciting. So it's like, yeah, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> great thing to think about. Um, Marco, do you have anything to add or do you want to go into our sport law questions? Well, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask is who were some of the mentors along the way that really had an impact on you? Oh, wow. Um, I would have to say Dr. Daniel Rosenberg. He is he was my sports sociology professor. Um, he's graduated from UMass actually before he got his PhD here. And that was before it was sport management. So it was physical education then. Um, and he ironically was an advisor to Dr. Janet Fink when she was getting her PhD at Ohio State. And so that just shows how small this, this world can be. Um, so Dr. Rosenberg is definitely up on that list. Dr. Kathy Ludwig, um, she was one of my kinesiology professors and just a badass. Like she just taught me how to speak up for myself and advocate and, you know, go out and get what I wanted. Um, Darlene Kluka, again, um, I had the good fortune, Barry, although it is small, um, people love to retire in Miami. And so quite a few big names would come down and kind of come through for a semester or a year uh, and teach while they were kind of getting into retirement mode. Um, and so I, I, I did get to learn from quite a few people who were kind of there on the front lines, front lines of Title IX. Um, and really kind of making a difference. And so I'd say Dr. Kluka definitely um, is, is one of those mentors that I can always call on when I need some sage advice. Um, and then since I've been here too, you know, Professor Master Alexis, um, I remember meeting her and I've read everything she's ever written. So it was fun to, you know, meet her and get to work with her. Um, and, and even, you know, Dr. Melton is a great mentor to me as someone who works within the department. And so it's really important that you have people that are close to you as well. So wherever you go, find that mentor, even though Dr. Melton has only been here a few more years than me, you know, she's our associate department chair um, and, and kind of knows the, the system, if you will. And so she's been a great uh, mentor to me as well. <clears throat> That's great. I, I mean, you've been a mentor to me since uh, when I got to UMass and, and I'm building a, a network of mentors in a way, whether it's in, in like in an internship or at McCormick, but we have great mem- mentors at McCormick and I'm really happy for that. That's the goal. We want you to go out and find mentors everywhere. You know? <laughs> alums, not alums, you know, whoever, whoever's there. <laughs> yeah, so um, you specialize in, in sport law, right? That's one that of is the class that I teach the most. I do not have a law degree, though. I let people know that. <laughs> so um, since, well, you know a lot about the industry and the sport uh, aspect, uh, what are some of the career paths in sport law that people can look to or be sure. interested in? Um, I think they kind of fall in three or four different buckets. The first one kind of being obvious to most people is that agency route of being a one-on-one kind of personal agent to an athlete. Although you do not need a law degree, there are no um, no degree require, law degree requirements anyway in any of the big four or five leagues. Um, you just need to pass. Now, some of them have, you have to have a bachelor's degree, um, but you have to pass a collective bargaining agree, a, agreement uh, test. 
so that you know what the CBA is all about and how that works. Um, and that would be different for every sport, depending on your, you know, your range of athletes. So that's a very popular one. But again, there's just as much sales involved in that job as there is law, because you're selling your client, you're trying to match them up with different endorsers for relationships, et cetera. Um, and so that's one big bucket. And that mostly falls under contract law is what you'd be doing a lot. Then there's in-house counsel. So every team has a group of in-house counsel. And most of what you're doing there is contracts, making sure that all the contracts are perfect and ready to go, whether that's contracts with your concessionaire, your employees, uh, your sponsors, anyone you're working with, as well as intellectual property. And so you would be on the hunt, if you will, for anybody who's using your name, image, and likeness, your logos, et cetera, without proper clearance. This happens a lot in sport, as you can imagine, right? Where people sell the knockoff, you know, jerseys, hats, et cetera. You know, I was at the Red Sox games all weekend and, you know, a couple blocks down, you see a table with stuff that looks like Red Sox stuff, but like it's not. Um, and so uh, IP or intellectual property is a big, a big piece of that as well. And then you get into more of the policy, so we use lawyers or people with law degrees that might not be practicing as much in the courtroom. And most of the people in sport law aren't really in the courtroom that often. Um, if they are, it's likely for a lawsuit or like a negligence claim, meaning somebody maybe slipped and fell at your venue, you didn't clean it properly, uh, those types of claims. Um, but that third bucket really falls into policy creation. So people on the board of directors at the NCAA or the United States Olympic committees, or even within each of the leagues, the players associations, the, the groups of people that are setting our policies and our procedures, usually you'll see some legal background there as well. Because you learn the logic, you learn the language of how to set. I mean, a policy is very similar to a law, right? It's a rule, there's a procedure, and, and that's, um, you know, how we're going to uh, move forward on that. So you'll see that area uh, as well. And you do see in, in some of the um, higher levels, you know, GMs um, or even uh, commissioners of leagues, you'll see many of them have law backgrounds. And it's really about just being able to navigate these very complex business situations and the training in law can help you do that. So yeah, those are the main areas of, of sport law. Well, uh, I remember in freshman year, we read uh, McCormick's book, uh, what they, what's it called? Um, what they don't teach you at Harvard. Yeah. At Harvard. And that really, you know, beyond what movies and uh, interviews with agents shows you, that really shows you the the best side of agency and also the hard work you have to put into the network. And yes, we've seen a trend ever since like what he describes in the book and what people describe about his work in the book about uh, uh, the power that players have been getting in terms of uh, their ability to create more wealth. Uh, we've seen it grow throughout the years. And now with the NIL legislation, it's, it's really expanded that to college athletes. So I wanted to know uh, why did the NIL legislation take so long to, to get passed by, by the government? Well, you know, I don't really think it took very long at all. I kind of think it was very much rushed. 
in a sense that the policy in creating it was really taking a long time. But the reason why it, it, in the public's perception it took so long is because this had to be a state by state decision. And so this was done by individuals in different states saying, hey, this isn't right. And then the member institutions in those states being named in those court cases. And so when you think about it that way, you have a lot of traction in with the NCAA and the courts have to deal with is every single one of those bills that was put through was significantly different. And so now you have 50 different bills trying to get passed for 50 different things with colleges in different regions that have different needs. In New York, they put in percentage of revenue for athletes, not profits, revenue. There isn't an athletic department in New York State that is profitable. So now you're going to drive them even further into the red because you didn't state profits. So if they made $1 in profits, we share that out. They were saying revenues, meaning that now many sports would have to fold. So a lot of people who are writing these bills are lawyers, but they don't really have the fundamental knowledge of how the NCAA operates. They see the NCAA through the lens of the Power Five. And most people see the NCAA through the lens of the Power Five, and that's not the reality. There are maybe five to 10 athletic departments in this country that are profitable year over year. And no one else is turning a profit. And so we think that there's all this really big money involved. And yes, there is big money. And that stays at the NCAA level for the most part or gets redistributed out for all of the sports that we don't get to see. And so I think that it, and by means of me saying I think it was rushed is that we didn't really think about unintended consequences here. And so what we're seeing now, a lot of these collaboratives or collectives coming to fruition because the, the way the rule is structured, the universities have to be kind of hands off, but their collectives, which are essentially boosters, don't have to be. So what we're doing is we're taking traditionally under the table payments that would have been illegal pay for play, and we brought them over the table. And we're calling them something else. But what was missing from this was education. There are no guardrails in this bill. This is all about, okay, don't violate these one or two rules, but there's nothing there protecting the athletes from potential unsavory individuals, you know, trying to make a quick buck. No one's teaching them about taxes. And how not only do you have to pay taxes on money that's given to you, but if Nike says, here's an extra thousand dollars worth of gear, you say, cool, you have to pay taxes on that one thousand dollars worth of gear. And maybe that would make you decide not to take that anymore because that's going to be cash you have to pay out at the end of the year. You know, you can't pay for that in a pair of sneakers. And so there's that piece. And then there's this this now this dynamic shift where the power five is going even further away because they have in-house resources. So if I'm Alabama, I can hire a top agent from Wasserman to come on over and help my student athletes get NIL deals. If I'm UMass, I cannot do that, right? I don't have that, that kind of money to have a new staff position to be able to do this. And so um, it really has been, I think we'll see some correction Right. We got a few big deals in the beginning when everyone was excited. I think we'll start to see those slowly maybe go away. Um, and it will be those students who really already had this big following that are getting the deals. And yeah, it could be because they're athletes, but most of the time it's because they just have fun personalities. And that's, you know, what has, you know, their TikTok following. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the third thing that is concerning, in my opinion anyway, is the idea of mental health and wellness and students feeling like they have to monetize, especially in revenue sports. So, you know, basketball, men's basketball players have a lot of them have always felt pressure from their family to be one and done, to get into the league as soon as you can, even if they're not really good enough to get into the league. Um, and so now, you know, they could be feeling that pressure too. Well, now you can make money, so make money. You know, I know you have school, I know you have these things, but you might have a family that needs help, et cetera. Um, and so feeling that pressure that now they might spend time monetizing or trying to get a TikTok following versus time spent on their studies or practice. I mean, I know that our coaches here on UMass have kind of mixed opinions about NIL and if it's a distraction or not. Um, and so we'll see, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, but most students are really not making that much money. Um, and I think the NCAA might be better suited to focus on equity in general. So, you know, parsing out all of our tournaments, selling them one on one, you know, and not kind of lumping them together so that they can make more money and those sports can be more sustainable. And then maybe athletic departments could be turning, you know, a profit. And that's something I think that could help the athletes even more um, than this. So I think we'll see a correction or hopefully something with the power five, because I feel like they need different rules. <clears throat> Yeah, because I, I remember when we were studying uh, in the sports sociology, we were studying the women's NCAA tournament in basketball compared to the men's. And the big difference in revenue was the fact the women's had been clumped together with a bunch of other sports and yeah. the deal with the streaming platform and with the media rights. And then the men's, it was sold as a standalone property. And that just allowed them to bargain for a lot more money because it was... Um, in, in case of, in the case of the women's sport, it was they were one of many in in the deal, and many of those, the the other sports that got clumped with the basketball tournament weren't as profitable, but the women's was. So it, it really limited their growth. It does, and I mean, we say revenue or non-revenue sports, but most of the sports that are non-revenue haven't had the chance, right? They don't charge. So it's like if I want to go down to a softball game and you're a non-revenue sport, like you. You didn't charge. I mean, look at that deal that Oklahoma State just got for their new softball facility. I mean, this is like a $50 million uh, naming rights, the whole bit. I mean, so if somebody is out there putting in the effort, the, the revenues will come. It's about that first piece, though, dedicating effort from, you know, football, men's basketball, maybe hockey here and there um, into elevating women's sports. <clears throat> Um, and now, now we're going to transition into some sport management questions that are more general about okay. the industry, not, not focused on law. So Amalia, she's going to get us started with the first one. I will. So what are some of the most in-demand skills in the current sport management industry? In-demand skills. I would say communication skills, both written and verbal. Um, we spend a lot of time on emails these days. And so that goes in almost any industry. So being able to uh, communicate quickly and concisely um, is really important. Uh, data management and not necessarily being, um, you know, really high level analysts, but just understanding data. And that's what I mean by data management, collecting it, cleaning it, keeping it organized so that 
if you need help, you can ask that analyst for help to get you some results, but you have that data ready to go. So understanding the importance of collecting data consistently and then using it to drive your decisions, but understanding that that's one piece, right? And so a lot of times now, We'll take that quantitative data that we have and we'll match it up with some qualitative insights too, just to make sure that things are trending in the same direction or that what we're seeing, you know, in our Excel sheet is also being mirrored, um, you know, in, in real life because sometimes data doesn't tell that complete story all on its own, but quantitative data anyway. Um, and so I think understanding the use and role of, of data communication or and and really being an ongoing learner right mm-hmm. industries are always changing and evolving i think we've seen that more than anything right now um and so understand you're going to constantly continue to learn and upskill and and make changes i hate to use the word pivot like that's the word we've been <laughs> using the past two years i'm done with the pandemic pivot but it's like, I feel like that's the way that the industries are evolving more quickly than ever before because of the speed of technology. So just being able to stay up to date and be adaptable to those changes um, and kind of welcome them is a key skill um, because you'll see those that just don't welcome them. They know that they're happening, but that attitude or that mindset then prevents them from taking advantage of things earlier. Right now they're a late adopter versus an early adopter. Um, And so I think those are are probably the three key skills. I'd say communication, the importance of data, and the ability to be adaptable and kind of keep ahead of the the trends. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, I don't know, Marco, if you can relate, but definitely this first year I've, what you were saying about data and uh, responding correctly I've learned so much just through emails. I like, I guess in high school, I never wrote emails but no. like, um, or professional emails at least, but I learned so fast how to like organize everything. And then especially with your newsletters, like going through them and like seeing what I have to do like that. I just want to let you know, that was really helpful. Just, I didn't realize how quickly I could learn um, something like that unconsciously. And it was just crazy for me. So thank you for that. <laughs> because you're doing it. Yeah, exactly. Like you have to <laughs> you do learn it. by doing. Sometimes yeah. we forget, we forget that though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that's where, where internships really kick in, kick in because as much as you learn in, in school yeah. and in college, as much as you, you learn the facts and the logic behind it, you have to put it into practice. And once you put it into practice, you really encode it into your habits and your skills and, and you're really able to make the most out of what you learn. Yeah. Yes. Um, going off of the skills, we only have about two questions left. Um, what habits do you believe are key to success? So similar to skills, but kind of just in your everyday, how can you incorporate um, to success? towards? I think goal setting is a really important habit. Even if your goal setting is just like a to-do list for the day, right? You wrote it down, you committed to it. You said, this is what I have to get done. Um, and I think intentionally using your strengths, whether you did the real survey that I have you do in intro or you just acknowledge that you have strengths within you that can help, uh, you know, get through that task list or set those goals, I think is really important. And so, um, and like I said, even just writing it down, then I know that it's going to get done and I'm not going to forget. Um, and so I think that's a really important habit. And I think getting into some habits for yourself. And so whether that's finding a hobby, and this is something I did not do in my 20s, and I wish I had, um, 
because all the research says so, but also I feel so. Um, and that is have a hobby, have something that you really enjoy doing that's not your work that can be there for your off time so that you're then not thinking about, okay, I have these days off. What am I going to do? And now you're like, Googling and wasting all this time, not doing anything actually fun. Um, and so having a, a hobby or something like rock, you know, rock climbing, right? Something that is your kind of your go-to so that when you have some time off, you kind of know what will be stress relieving and fun for you and hopefully active, um, I think is important. And understanding too, and this happens with time only, only time, um, that work is going to be there tomorrow. It like is not going anywhere as much as I do try every day to clear my inbox out just to get responses out to people. Um, I do understand that like that project doesn't have to be done tomorrow. It will be done when it's done for some things and other things that have like a timeline on them that are more important. So I think those those habits of understanding that like work will still be there. And like I said, that one only comes with time because sometimes when you're in your first few years out, you're the one making sure everything's getting done on time. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that one takes a little bit more time, but I think just, um, setting goals, understanding that you have the strengths to achieve those goals, um, and having some hobbies and, and really cherishing some downtime, I think is important to just rest and, and recharge. Mm-hmm. And uh, our last question uh, is, do you have any books that you want to recommend to us and our listeners? It, it, they can be in the sports uh, genre or oh, anything. Oh, books. Okay. I'm like, what have I read in the past? I try to keep them a little bit fresh. Um, I do like the book Range by Epstein. It's really about... Um, how generalists can thrive in a very specialized world, which I think is important because if you're coming out of business school, you, you probably are more of a generalist and that's okay because it's about strategic thinking and kind of putting the pieces together. Um, I like the book, Where Good Ideas Come From by Steven Johnson. Again, that is um, really focused on ideation. And it's a history book, really, which is fun because it shows just how all these innovations came about. And it reminds you that they didn't just happen in this aha moment in a room with some really smart person. It was a labor of love. It was a slow hunch that, you know, someone else then helped them, right? It's really a story about helping and connecting ideas together uh, for, for innovation. Um, and what is the one? There's one that's like slipping my mind right now. And I told all the grad students to read it. <laughs> that's one thing I have done a better job of during the pandemic is reading more books. Um, I'll think of that one and have to come back to you. I forgot it. And I also just read the the memo by Mean to Hearts, and that was a really great book if you're looking to. Um, and for me, I read that because it was about it helping and inspiring uh, women of color in the office and in the workplace. And so I wanted to make sure that I read it so that I could help pass along those nuggets of wisdom uh, to our our students. And so that was a really good read there because it, it made me really think about something bigger than myself and stepping outside of myself for um, a little while to, to get at, you know, really what else uh, we could be doing to help uh, make sure people are treated equitably in the workplace. Um, I, I wanted to recommend one to you. I don't know if you've read it, The Alchemist. Oh, The Alchemist. I've heard of it. I haven't read it yet. 
it's really good. It's it's really I think it applies to every walk of life. It's about pursuing your own personal legend, and it and it's 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 really like a story that is like a metaphor to to what everybody's life can be like if they set their sight on a dream and want to pursue it. Oh, okay. I like that. I have to take a look at that. And obviously Beyond Harvard is, is a must read for every, anybody in the sports industry. <laughs> it is. It's a classic. You know, it's kind of stood the test of time, actually. It's a fairly old book. Um, I have you read the second version of it because I like that one better. It's not the first version is all uh, Mark McCormick. And it's, it, I like the second version of the vignettes and the stories of the, the people that worked with him and the lessons that then they learned from him. I feel like I like that third mm-hmm. kind of third person, if you will, a little bit better. I, I really liked it because it shows you not, it's not like McCormick saying like, this is my impact on other people, but it's everybody that he's had, no, some of the people he's had an impact in because he's had an impact on way more people, but exactly. them telling the anecdotes of how McCormick embodies one of the greatest people in the history of sport management. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's an, and that's all through, you know, networks, his network, um, you know, and maintaining that. And, and that's also why I love to bring in Buffy from Teamwork Online because she's somebody that, you know, worked from him, worked with him very, um, she was very young. She was the first, you know, woman agent, technically speaking, <laughs> in IMG. And so to see how she's gone on to change the industry in her own way, through teamwork online and giving back. I mean, I met Buffy when I was 18 years old um, and she's still at it. And that's really, really cool uh, to see that. Ah, the long game. I knew it would come to me. (laughs) The long game by Dory Clark. Um, It is a book for all people, I think, especially in their 20s though, because it really does um, put timing into perspective. Because I just remember being in my late 20s and being like, why am I not like the president of something by now? Um, Because we bring in all these alums and we forget that like, hey, that person's 42. That's not old, but they've been working for 20 years. Okay, you know, that's why they're a vice president now. Um, And so it's it's uh, it really helps that put that in perspective. It helps put networking in perspective. It's just a really good book. Um, And then sport wise, I should name at least one sport book, right? I would say, uh, be where your feet are. It's by Scott O'Neill. Um, and so owner of the 76ers, you know, and that whole group. And so it was just a really good, it's an easy read too. It's about principles just to keep you present and grounded. So it's really more about wellness, um, in this, uh, in this industry, I guess. So yeah, one of my favorite things to ask to 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 any alum is, what does your career path look like? And and that's something that that comes back to uh, you talking about networking because and and the long game. I really like to see how people got to where they are, and and it shows you that mm-hmm. maybe you can have the same goal as somebody else, but in you, you're gonna have a different path. Everybody's path is different, and yes, and it's good. And that's yes, good. it is different. And and I I think one of the quotes I probably use the most when I'm having a lot of one on ones in my office is by Mark Twain, and it is comparison is the death of joy. Yeah, you can't compare yourself to everybody else or to that person who got that internship or is doing this or that. You just have to stay inside there, you know, uh, because everybody is on their own path. And for some of us, it takes a little longer than others, but that's probably for a reason, you know? 
Mm. Yeah, it's definitely hard to. It's it's easier said than done, but like I'm I am really yeah. trying to like, especially in a at such a big school, it's hard to. Yeah. Times, but I think throughout the next three years we'll we'll be masters at it. So <laughs> hopefully we'll not compare ourselves anymore. But yeah. It's 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 almost it's it's something you have to say stop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. it's human nature. <laughs> yeah. Well, Marco, if you don't have anything else to add, I think that's all the questions that I have. Um Yeah, it's the same for me. It's it's been a great interview. Thank you so much yeah, for coming. Yeah, really. We got like this is Amazing one-on-one. Couldn't have asked for more. So thank you for contributing to our little podcast. Um, so yeah. Well, good on you for just coming up with this idea and doing it. Well, Ideas are one Marco. thing, but that's doing just, them is another. You know, that's all Marco. He he came to me. He pitched it to me. So. Well, it's fifty-fifty. The the pitch was fifty, <laughs> but getting a Molly was the other fifty. So it's it's been nice. good. I, I love to see what the leaders club is up to. You guys are always doing something, <laughs> which is really cool. It's the best part of my job. <sighs> okay. So yeah, the club has been great. And it's, and it's really been one of my favorite things about McCormick, about UMass. It's, it really makes it feel like a small group of people because in such a big school, having this small group of people, which is actually not small in terms of a club, it's one of the biggest clubs in, for imagine but still when you when you like in proportion to the whole school it's really small and then you get this kind of like tight-knit family in, in mccormick and it's it's been great I, I yeah mean, i'm happy great. that we're back and we can go on some more field trips and that kind of sure. i'm excited for next semester yes i'm trying to get us down to dc oh wow <laughs> well we have so many people now between in that area that we might as well. We think we've got somebody at every team down there. So that would be a fun trip. <laughs> yeah, former club president Ari, he's he's in DC right now. Yeah, and, and Jenna too. Jenna Melvin, she wasn't in the club, but she's a, a senior who just graduated. She went down to the commanders now as well. And we've got a previous club members at uh, DC United and all throughout Monumental, all throughout Monumental. We've got a lot of people there. Um, and so that's nice. I got to find somebody at the nationals, but I'm sure there's somebody. <laughs> sure, there's somebody. That's the one thing that's not coming right to t- right through my my head. But there's somebody there. Um, so that that should be fun. Yeah. Super excited. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. And thank you so much again for joining. And I um, hope to see you soon. All right. Enjoy your internships, both of you. Have fun. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.